G'day everyone, welcome to episode 32 of Rare and Resilient 1 in 5000 podcast, where we're talking IARM. I'm Greg Ryan, and it's my pleasure to welcome Maddie from America. Maddie's 25, she's shared her story in the book, story number 112 on page 248. And as well, Maddie's parents, Thomas and Meredith, shared their story of their experiences with Maddie as well, which is on story 107, page 234. Welcome, Maddie. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to get to talk to you today. Oh, yeah. Well, for all our listeners, Maddie and I have been chatting online for a few years now, and this is the first time we've actually seen each other face to face. (laughs) So, Maddie, if you want to start reading your story. About a year ago, my two-year-old niece snuck into the bathroom when I was starting my flush and decided she wanted to sit in the bathtub and hang out with me for a while. She knew that I had a special belly button, but she didn't know what for. She curiously and intensely watched me as I inserted the catheter into my Malone and completely floored me when she gave me a round of applause after I taped the tube into place. I remember looking at her as she clapped and all I could do was cry. It was honestly one of the first moments in my life that the magnitude of how abnormal and sometimes difficult what I have to do on a daily basis as a result of my birth defect hit me. And yet at two years old, my niece was able to recognize that I was doing something extraordinary. It's a moment I'll never forget. I was born on August 15th, 1996 with a high cloaca inducting me into the one in 5,000 community. After numerous reconstructive surgeries, I became what outwardly appeared to be a normal little girl. Although behind closed doors, my life was anything but normal. While I am blessed in that my disability is hidden from view, that veil of privacy is also a curse because most people have no idea what it means to be me. Sometimes I think being me is like running a marathon while carrying a 100 pound weight on my shoulders. It can be done if I'm truly determined, but it takes a lot more effort to get to the finish line. Determination has never been something I found myself lacking. However, I can honestly say that sometimes I struggle with why. Why was I given so many obstacles? Why did that higher power think that I was strong enough to handle all of this? Why was I given a life that always seems to be an uphill battle? The answer, the view from that top of that hill is completely worth the struggle. This is even more clear as I write this from my hospital room at Boston Children's Hospital, my home for the last six weeks, after what I hope is the conclusion of the hardest three years of my life. I'm very lucky in that until 2017, I didn't have any major health crises that impacted the other aspects of my life. At least it never felt like they did. In August, 2017, I was diagnosed with a severe obstruction in my right ureter that was compromising the function of my right kidney. This resulted in numerous multi-drug resistant kidney infections that led to urosepsis and multiple hospitalizations. This happened to line up perfectly with the start of my senior year at James Madison University, JMU, uh, where I studied biology and pre-medicine. Early on in my diagnosis, I made the decision to continue my education at JMU despite my poor health and need for surgery. 
I also had a great deal of responsibility on my shoulders with my collegiate dance team, the JMU Duquettes. As our coach quit very early in the season and as a team captain, the success of the program was in my hands. Through each hospitalization, I juggled completing my college coursework with drawing out dance formations and choreographing for my team. There were times when I would be on the phone delegating responsibilities to my teammates just minutes before heading into the operating room. In April 2018, I helped lead the JMU Duquettes to the program's third national championship. I was septic and had surgery the week before our competition, and I am incredibly proud to say I made it onto the stage with my team one last time. On May 7th, 2018, I graduated cum laude with distinction, and two days later, I was in New York City for my second bilateral ureter reimplantation that I had successfully put off for nearly 10 months. I wouldn't take any of these moments back, and I don't regret a single decision that I made along the way. However, my body was significantly impacted by these health struggles, and as a result, my life will never be the same. While my kidney function is now stable, my GI tract was greatly affected in ways that we don't fully understand. As a result, I now rely entirely on enteral feeds and a central line to receive IV hydration. In October, I underwent a procedure at Boston Children's Hospital to place a gastrojejunal or a GJ tube and a Broviac central line so that I can maintain a healthy nutritional status while also having the quality of life I deserve. I also made the decision that during this surgery, I would have a total abdominal hysterectomy and bilateral oophorectomy. While this would typically be an incredibly hard choice to make, it didn't feel that difficult to me as I've spent the last 10 years struggling with horrific pain with menstrual cycles, ovarian cysts, and endometriosis. Along with that comes medications that have their own side effects, like menopause or bone loss. The surgery kick-started six weeks of unexpected complications and many important life lessons. The first complication, a fully collapsed lung, threw everyone for a loop. Why? Because my vitals were completely stable and I was not showing any signs of respiratory distress. I then had to be rushed into the interventional radiology suite to have a chest tube placed while I was completely awake, an experience I hope no one else has to go through. However, it taught me how much my body has learned to compensate for the pain it fights every single day of my life. On that same day, my newly placed GJ tube flipped, so the part that was meant to be in my jejunum was in my stomach. This meant that at the same time my chest tube was placed, the IR team was also digging around in a brand new incision to try to get my GJ tube back into place. Fast forward one week, seven days of vomiting and retching, I was rushed into an, an emergency laparotomy at 6 p.m., as crazy as it sounds, this might be one of my favorite medical memories because I had this huge rush of adrenaline. And then right before surgery, Dr. Dickey played Taylor Swift in the OR and we danced it out up until the moment they put me under. The recovery after this surgery was harder than anything I could have ever imagined. 
I was so defeated after the first time I tried walking and only made it about 10 steps before nearly passing out. I spent hours beating myself up over being so weak. I expected myself to be stronger and I felt like I had let myself down. I quickly realized that I needed to give myself more credit. In the three weeks before that moment, my body had fought through trauma after trauma. And while my mind and spirit were strong, my body needed some time to catch up and heal. I have spent my whole life being complimented for how strong I am. And I think at some point that made me think I couldn't be weak, both physically and mentally or emotionally. As a result, I failed to recognize the negative emotions that come along with living with a chronic illness. And so the last few years, I genuinely felt like my birth defect hadn't affected me emotionally and mentally. However, the traumas I experienced in the last three years have forced me to face the emotions that I had previously ignored. Things like helplessness, defeat, fear, sadness, and sometimes even anger. I learned that in those moments of weakness, I tend to shut off my emotions and put on a brave face. Or I express those emotions instead in anger towards the people who are just trying to help make things easier for me. Because I'd rather them think that I'm angry or frustrated with them than have them see how much pain I'm truly in. I also learned that in keeping those emotions bottled up, I made it a lot harder for myself to heal once the storm passed. I don't think that I'm alone in this. I think that a lot of kids that grow up with chronic illness learn how to be strong at a very young age. And then in order to protect our loved ones, we keep on a brave face to hide any weakness. We also adapt to our lives so quickly that catheterizing, living with a stoma, or doing enemas becomes normal, when in reality, it's not normal. It's a lot to deal with, and it's also painful and emotionally taxing at times. It's not the easiest life to live, but it's what makes us unique. I think we all deserve to give ourselves a little more credit for that. It took that moment with my niece a year ago to help me start to recognize these things, and I know I still have a lot to learn. The experiences I have had as a result of my anatomical uniqueness have played an integral part in shaping the person I am today, providing me with an enduring sense of empathy and a deep passion to pursue a career in medicine. I dream that one day I will improve the quality of life of my patients like my doctors did for me. I will one day become a dedicated and compassionate physician who fiercely advocates for her patients, instills them with hope and provides them with unparalleled support on their journey through life. Absolutely amazing, Maddie. <laughs> and what you probably don't understand is that by reading your story and sharing your journey, you've already started to influence kids and teens as patients because of sharing your experiences. That was written like 18 months ago. Yes. How does it feel to listen to it back and how have things progressed since then? To be honest, reading it back, I, I found myself chuckling a few times because I wrote that while I was in the hospital at uh, Boston Children's Hospital. So I was on a lot of medications at the time. So I feel like some of it didn't necessarily make 
complete sense. And some of the things that I said, I don't think I would say now, specifically the use of the word normal. One of the things I just had this conversation with my mom last week about how delicate I think we have to be with using the word normal. Sometimes I think I convinced myself that my life was normal in comparison to my peers and got to a point where I was doing that so much that I was kind of in denial. But I think there's a delicate balance there because our day-to-day lives are normal to us, same way that my dad goes to work from nine to five. I catheterize and I do an enema and, you know, it's normal for me. So I wanted to make that adjustment with what I originally wrote in the anthology, because I think it's important to note that everybody's normal is different. But it was also kind of hard to read that back. When I wrote that, I'd been coming up on the end of my hospitalization and um, what I hope was the end of some very hard years. Even during that time, I was applying to medical school. Shortly after the anthology was published, I found out that I was accepted to medical school. I remember Uh, that. Yes. So I am currently in Cincinnati. I'm in my first year of medical school at the University of Cincinnati. College of Medicine, which is truly a dream come true. And I am also unfortunately still facing a lot of the health struggles now that I faced 10 months ago. And so that can sometimes be really defeating. And I think I, I realized that I kind of group things together, you know, so I had three years from 2017 through 2020 where I was really sick. And then the last 18 months, things have been going pretty well for me. Now they're not anymore. And that's okay. Living with cloaca and IA, you know, it's really is like a roller coaster. We have highs and lows. And one of the things that I can't stress enough is that it just truly is a lifelong illness, you know, and it ebbs and flows and you know we take everything that is kind of handed to us and you figure out what to do next and so I I thought that when I wrote that I guess what two years ago now um, that that was kind of going to be the the end of my big health struggles but I have some more things coming up now and maybe after that it'll it'll be the end but you know I'm I'm very lucky that we have such a strong community in the IA world. Patients with IA and ARM, I think it's so amazing how we've all been able to come together. I mean, think just me and you, I think we've been chatting on Facebook now for five or six years. It's been a while. It would have to Um, be that. It would definitely have to be. Yeah. And, you know, it's friendships that, you know, quickly become like family. And so I'm, I'm very, very lucky to, to be able to have support from all of you guys and other adult patients as well. It's, it's interesting now being a medical student and kind of getting a little bit of perspective um, from the medical professional side of things while also still having a very strong hold on my perspective as a patient. The perspective you bring to your fellow students and to the doctors and your mentors will be absolutely invaluable. Absolutely invaluable. I can't even stress that enough. What you're showing by sharing your story, not only with the public, but also with your passion of being a doctor, it's immeasurable what impact you're going to have on patients and your peers as well. Because our illness is invisible as such, how was the reaction when you had the G-tube go for your nose? So there was something 
that was noticeable. Did you find the reaction from people was different? Yes. I think that the idea of disability as a social construct is so fascinating to me because I do think that there are invisible disabilities and then you have these glaringly obvious disabilities. And but disability is the same, you know, Um, and I think that I didn't really necessarily realize that until I had my nasal jejunal feeding tube. And people really do start treating you differently. The second that people actually recognize or they can look at you and see that you have an illness or a disability, they do treat you differently. Now, in my experience, it was never that anybody treated me lesser or they they never made me feel like I was less capable of doing anything. But there definitely was a difference in the way that people approached me. And I think people were maybe a little bit more sensitive. And in some ways, that was nice. And in other ways, I think it kind of made me a little bit angry. Yeah. Because, you know, when I had the nasal jejunal feeding tube, it was almost that was kind of one of the you know, lesser things that I was going through at the time in comparison to my kidney being obstructed, for example, you know, but because I suddenly had this tube on my face that was obvious to other people, suddenly people were starting to recognize, oh, she's sick. When in reality, I've been battling different illnesses my entire life, which was just the difference of having something on my face to not having anything at all. Similarly to now, I have a central line that's on my chest. And even like my first week of courses here in Cincinnati, I would find some of my peers just like staring at my central line. And sometimes I kind of just wanted to be like, you can ask, you know, why I have it or, you know, maybe don't stare at somebody's, you know, medical equipment because you don't know how that might make them feel. But it is really interesting going from having this fully invisible illness to having some aspects of your health be obvious to others. Um, And it's really fascinating to see how people can treat you differently just because you have that one thing that's either it's taped on your face or on your chest, or if you're in a wheelchair, you know, it's, it's really interesting to kind of recognize that you do get treated differently as soon as people start seeing that you have a disability. You explained that perfectly because one of the photos in the book was with the tube. So it was really, it was wonderful. Thank you. Let's talk about being the cheerleader captain. That would have involved a lot of physical exertion with your body. I really want you to talk about that because it shows parents and kids growing up that nothing can stop you. So how did you get through all that? So I was very lucky to grow up with three older sisters, and I would say I am determined. My parents would probably say that I'm stubborn and (laughs) hard-headed, so um, when my sisters were doing anything, I wanted to do the same thing, and I wanted to do it better, so two of my older sisters danced, and um, my mom put me in dance classes when I was two years old. And originally, because of my spinal anomalies, I had a really hard time with muscle tone and balancing. And it wasn't until I was, I think, nine or 10 years old that I really started to kind of gain my confidence in dance. And it actually, what happened was I was in a ballet class. And I remember it so clearly because I think I was nine years old. I was in fourth grade. 
And the ballet teacher pulled me and my mom aside after class and said that I would never dance at the same level as my peers because I couldn't balance like them. She was specifically talking about pirouettes at the time. And I looked at her and I said, I'll be one of the best turners to come out of this studio. And then I was. Well <laughs> um, done. Because I, if I'm the kind of person where if you tell me I can't do something, I'm going to do it. And then I'm going to do it better. And dance was honestly my therapy. I feel like dance, even with the times when I was so sick, dance was always my outlet. So I could be in excruciating pain. But if I was dancing for those two minutes, I was pain free. Specifically, my senior year at JMU, I had a nephrostomy tube for a few months during that time. And I wasn't able to dance And I remember being so sad about that just because it was the one thing that I always had. I feel like sometimes with our birth defect, you, you lose a lot of your day, you know, whether that be having to be in the bathroom because of your flushes or you're having accidents, you know, or you're just having to be horizontal because you don't feel well. I, even on the days when I was feeling my worst, I still had dance. And I think that that was also one of the things that kind of made me normal or kind of the same as my peers as I could dance alongside my peers and nobody knew that I had all of these other things going on outside of that. That's really interesting because I was wondering whether you were going to talk about in that situation that you were so determined to feel normal and be just like everybody else. Mm -hmm. That's what we crave. Yeah. Yes. And I think that what's so important too is, and one of the things that, one of the reasons why I decided I wanted to go into medicine and specifically to work with patients with colorectal and anorectal malformations is that I want to be able to look at a little girl or look at her parents and say, you can do whatever you dream of doing, you can do it. You can do the same thing that your peers are doing. And, you know, you might even do it better than them. And just because you have this diagnosis doesn't mean that you have to limit yourself or change your goals and aspirations because you also have to catheterize or do enemas or do all of these other medical interventions within your 24 hour day. Also with dance, it was just the one, it was the one thing that was always mine. And still to this day, it's the one thing that my health can't take away from me. And I think that's why I've always just kind of held on to it. Even when people, my senior year at JMU, I think people thought I was insane because I would be in excruciating pain. I would do our nationals routine, which is a, I think two minute routine. And then I'd be like on the floor in a ball because I was just in so much pain afterwards, but it was worth it for those two minutes. I felt connected with my body in a way that wasn't painful. And it, that was just such a valuable experience for me to have as much as I, I could. How did you handle situations when you would have accidents, which invariably that would have happened? Yes. So I would say my sisters helped me the most with accidents. Even to this day, I'm unfortunately right now I'm completely incontinent. So I am living in pull-ups as a 25-year-old woman, which is something that you never want to deal with. But I think my sisters and I growing up, we always made it a joke. Like it was like, oh, Mads pooped her pants again. 
And so it was like, you know, I, I grew up kind of just shaking it off. And so to this day, that's still what I do. I was always very, very open about my birth defect. So my best friends in college, the day I met them, they sat with me on my enema. And oh, so, really? they, yes. And so they, had <laughs> I can't even the, comprehend that. Yeah. Yeah. They, I, I think it really helped having my sisters just made everything feel so normal to me that like, I never felt uncomfortable. And I'm, I'm so grateful that I had that experience that I've just always felt so comfortable being open about it all. And so all of my friends always have like, a, they have their own bag with catheters and wipes and a pull up. So I, no matter where I'm at, somebody has some sort of thing for me if I was to have an accident and couldn't get to my own like rescue bag to get a change of clothes or to to have wipes. That is absolutely incredible Maddie really to have friends like that and for you to be able to share something so personal with them and be so open about it that's yeah that is truly incredible. I think I've been very, very lucky in terms of the people that have come into my life. I started a blog um, when I was in college. And one of the reasons why I started that blog was because I've been talking to a lot of girls with cloaca who at that time, you know, they just talked about how their, their mom was their best friend and or their mom was their only friend. And don't get me wrong, I'm so close to my mom you know, going through everything that we go through, you have to be really close with your parents. But I was also really lucky to have these very strong relationships with people outside of my family. And I think part of that was because I felt so comfortable with being able to tell them about everything that goes on in my life. And it was such a rewarding experience for me to feel comfortable in my own skin to share that with others. And so I'd started a blog in college to share my experience. And I think it takes time to, to feel confident enough to do that. But once you do feel comfortable with talking about it, I, I mean, I th- think you can probably speak to that as well, that once you do feel like, feel comfortable enough to share, it's almost like this weight off your shoulders to, to really be able to just be who you are and be so authentic and not be afraid or feel ashamed in any way. Yeah. I sometimes look back now and I just can't comprehend why I kept it a secret for 52 years. I can't explain it, but you're right. You have to get to that level and it, and some people never get there and that's Totally fine as well. Totally understand that because I say to people, well, I can't talk. I kept it secret for so long. Now, Maddie, just want to talk about the relationship that you, you've had with your doctors, especially Dr. Alberto Pena at Shriners in New York, and then Dr. Belinda Dickey at Boston, who I know has had an incredible impact on your life. Yes. So I met Dr. Pena when I was six months old. My parents were really lucky that the hospital that I was born at, Thomas Jefferson University Hospital in Philadelphia, there was a doctor there who did a lot of research on cloaca after I was born and um, told my parents about Dr. Pena. So Dr. Pena has been a part of my life for as long as I can remember. I 
think every day I think of him, I think everything that I've accomplished, I, I owe to him. because uh, he, he made the life that I now live possible. He's made the lives of so many uh, yes. patients with Arm possible. It's, and his story itself is just so inspiring. It's very fitting that your podcast interview is the one that comes after the one where I did for him. Yes, <laughs> I was just listening to, to that um, episode as well. And I was laughing at that, how he talks about it, it's like being bitten by a spider. Yes. Like if, if it's like being bitten by a spider, then he's the spider and, and I'm the one that got bit because <laughs> he, he inspired me so much. I mean, I think I've been saying since I was two or three years old that I wanted to grow up and be a pediatric colorectal surgeon, just like Dr. Pena. He is just beyond incredible. I think the way that he is able to comfort parents while also talk to patients and, you know, he gave me hope at such a young age. And I have a professor here at the University of Cincinnati who says that the most powerful medicine you can prescribe your patients is hope. And I love it every single time he says that because I couldn't agree more. You know, Dr. Pena from a very young age gave me hope you know, he never let me feel like what I was going to be going through throughout my life was going to encumber my goals or give me any sort of difficulty in terms of wanting to pursue a career in medicine. And the last time I talked to Dr. Pena, well, I talked to him after I got accepted to medical school. <laughs> oh, he would have been so over the moon with that. Yes, it, it was very special to, to be able to tell him that I was finally going to, to medical school because he's truly, he's the first doctor to have ever inspired me. And he is also the one doctor who introduced me to all the other doctors who have inspired me. So people like Dr. Belinda Dickey at Boston Children's Hospital or Dr. Leslie Breach at Cincinnati Children's. One of the last times that Dr. Pena took me into the OR, he also brought Dr. Dickey in with him. And so that's how I got introduced to Dr. Dickey was that last time that they all took me into the OR at Cincinnati Children's. I think that was probably in 2017, maybe. And then I honestly had a little bit of lapse in colorectal care. And that was completely on me because things had been going well. You know, I think I had been doing the same flush regimen for, you know, eight or so years and I wasn't having any issues. So when Dr. Pena moved to Denver, I didn't have a colorectal surgeon for a few years. And then when everything got bad with my kidneys in 2018, that was also when my GI tract started kind of just failing completely. And I, at the time I was with Dr. Shamil Alam who also trained at Cincinnati Children's. And he was like, you know, I think you need to go see Dr. Dickey in Boston. And boy, am I glad that he did that. Dr. Dickey was one of the first surgeons to sit down with me and say, I don't know what's going on. Completely agree that something is wrong. I don't know what it is, but we're going to work together and we're going to get down to the bottom of it. I have felt that level of comfort with surgeons before, but I've never had somebody actually sit down and say that to me. Do you think that coincided with you being an adult too? Um, Maybe. I also think, you know, one thing that I will say about Dr. Dickey is I have just always felt so comfortable being completely transparent with her. 
there is just something about her. I she is so soft spoken, but she's confident. The way that she carries herself, though, you can just tell the, the the way that she cares for her patients is is really beautiful. I and I think that she has a very special relationship with each of her patients. But growing up, I always said when I grow up, I want to be like Dr. Pena. And I still say that, but now I have a long list of surgeons (laughs) that I I want to be like, and Dr. Dickey's at the top of that list. I think she is truly incredible. And even, you know, I just had an appointment with her in the last week and I, I can sit down and I have a really hard time crying in front of people. And I feel so comfortable being open and crying with Dr. Dickey or even her NPs up at Boston Children's Hospital. And I think that patients have those relationships elsewhere. This is just my personal experience. Uh, most definitely. I can, I can attest to that. <laughs> yes. But, you know, Dr. Dickey, she's really, she's the one person I, I feel like, like she, she feels like family, you know, going through everything that I went through when I was hospitalized at Boston Children's was a lot, but she came to my hospital room at least twice a day. She went on walks with me. We would dance it out. And I mean, I, there's one day I made her watch the scene in the Grinch because every time they changed my nightgown, I would do the, the scene in the Grinch where he's like, Ooh, Ah, <laughs> she, she didn't know what I was talking about. And so she sat in my hospital room and I made her watch that scene. And I knew she had other patients to go talk to, but she, she did that with me. And she, every time I, something goes on in my health, she looks at me, she says, Maddie, what do you want to do? And just the question of saying, Maddie, what do you want means the world to me? Cause I think that that's not something that every doctor necessarily thinks about. They think about what is medically necessary. How can I fit this into my schedule? You know, what needs to be done rather than what does the patient want? What can I, how can I be your doctor while also making your wants happen while also respecting the fact that you are a human being with a life that has other things going on other than living with a chronic illness. Now, one of the highlights of your stay in Boston Children's was at the end, you did a video, didn't you? A dance video, (laughs) which included Dr. Dickey. So let's talk about that. Yes. So this is very funny because Dr. Dickey, the whole time I was there, kept saying that she wanted me to film a TikTok. And then it turned into, so it was, I think it was her idea. I'm pretty confident it was her idea, but then it became a, she was telling the colorectal center that I wanted to film a TikTok. And so then one of the NPs, Cassie and the social worker that came into my room and they were like, all right, so here's the deal. Dr. Dickey is saying that you want to film a TikTok, but we think that she wants to film one. (laughs) So then the the last week that I was there and I had been going through the halls throughout like my evening walks and playing music and just kind of like dancing in the hallways with a bunch of people. And so we ended up having a good group of, I think Dr. Dickey was in it. There were two other pediatric surgeons. There was a 
fellow, a few nurses, and then a few NPs. And it was so much fun. We just choreographed a little routine and then filmed it. And then they threw me a little going away party that night as well. So it, I mean, it's really funny when I think back to my time in Boston, because I truly walked away with some of the best memories. I still talk to a lot of the the nurses or the patient care technicians. I talk to them frequently. I really walked away feeling so light and having so much hope, which is really funny because if you ask my parents, they're like, oh, that was the most traumatic time of our lives. And I'm like, oh, I had a great time. (laughs) (laughs) So Maddie, it's interesting what you just mentioned there about your family and your parents and how they said it was such a traumatic experience. Can you just give us an insight into your relationship with your parents and your sisters and how they have helped you through your life really yes I count my blessings every day that I was given the family that that I was I have really unique relationships with every single one of my sisters I have three older sisters my oldest sister is kind of like a second mom to me that's Nicole she's the one that has two daughters and it's really funny because Lily, the, my niece who I mentioned in the story, looks more like me than she does my sister. It's <laughs> the most bizarre thing. But Nicole is kind of like a second mom to me. She, she worries a lot. And then there's Danny. And Danny and I both are very sarcastic. And I tend to, when it comes to coping with some of the things that I go through, I tend to make a lot of jokes. And so Danny and I have the same exact sense of humor. So we love making jokes about all of the different things that I've been through. And then Gabby, she and I, it's really funny. We had like the rockiest relationship growing up. Oh, really? But it's the funniest stories because it was just, you know, she was the baby and then I was born and so much attention had to go on me. And she was used to kind of being the baby of the family. But then it was, it quickly became, she would lay in my crib with me and read me stories. And then like my colostomy would explode and she'd go on the baby monitor and be like shouting to my mom that I had just pooped everywhere. And then she, she was the one to sit with me on my enemas almost every single night, or I would be on the toilet and she would take a bath and just hang out with me during my enemas. And then she stayed with me in the hospital a lot when I was in college because she was at the same school as me. But with all three of my sisters, in the best way possible, they've never treated me any differently. Um, I think the last few years has been really hard for everyone in my family. And so it's kind of changed our relationships a little bit in that maybe they, they don't, they take it a little bit more seriously now. And I'm like, And in some ways that's hard for me just because, you know, I realized that a lot that I went through in the last few years was traumatic for them. And because it felt so normal for me, you know, I'm very much the kind of person where every time something new happens with my health, I'm so quick to go into survival mode. Part of my survival mode is protecting my family. I get that totally. Yes. And so now I think that they are much more cautious in terms of they just maybe try to shelter me a little bit more. 
which is part of the reason why I think it was really good for me to have gotten accepted into a medical school that's far away from anyone in my family, just so that they can really see that I can, not that they ever doubted it in any ways, but to see that I can succeed on my own. Or, you know, I was in the hospital a month ago and my parents were like, oh, we're getting in the car and we're coming. And I told them, no, I told them that I was okay, that this was something that I needed to do on my own. And that was really for me. I just needed to prove to myself that I could go through a tough hospitalization without any of my family members there. But I mean, my family, has, they've been my number one cheerleaders. I was just saying to my mom the other day that when it comes to my health, my mom, my dad, and I make a dang good team. I don't think that I would be the person that I am today if I didn't have the two of them raising me. They truly just made everything. The, the decisions that they made for me when I was too young to understand you know, made the life that I live possible. So in the same way that Dr. Pena made my life possible, without my parents making those decisions, I would not be where I am today. And, you know, even now, like in the days when I'm feeling really sick, they remind me of my, my dreams and my goals. And they help me kind of push forward. And they never really let me feel down or defeated for, for too long as much as they say I inspire them, they inspire me and motivate me every day to, to keep pushing forward. Because, you know, I think if I could help by sharing my experience and the, the relationship that I have with my family and how they've really kind of lifted me up through living with IA and ARM, if I can share that and, you know, inspire another family and patient to do the same, then I would say I've accomplished anything that I could have wanted by being able to talk about my story. Well, you definitely have that. And I've been fortunate to have a lot of chats with you, my Meredith, over the journey, especially that time when you were in hospital two years ago. I was regularly checking in with your mum and she was keeping me updated. And there was one stage there where we weren't too sure whether the story was going to be written, but I kept on, (laughs) I'm not going to publish the book until the story's (laughs) written, so... Between us all, we got it done, and I'm just so glad. What's your greatest advice to little girls growing up now who were born with the same condition as yourself, and what would you say to them? Because you are Um, going to inspire them, no doubt about that. Thank you. I'm a huge Taylor Swift fan, as you know. So the one thing that I always told myself whenever I had moments of doubt growing up was, you're lucky enough to be different, never change. That's a Taylor Swift quote, but it's still the one piece of advice I try to give to everyone. Having cloaca, there are so many different things that kind of go along with that, especially as you grow up. For me, at least as I've gotten older, things have gotten worse. So, you know, every time a new milestone in my life comes along, it seems like another health obstacle comes as well. And in those moments where I feel disappointed or defeated, the one thing that I can do is recognize that my journey is unique. And in a way, I'm very lucky for that because it truly, in the least cliche way possible, it truly has made me a stronger person and it's given me a story to tell. So there's one thing that I can 
hopefully inspire little girls with cloaca do is to keep a smile on their face and to recognize that regardless of our birth defect, you can accomplish whatever you want to in life, whether that be being a school teacher or being a pediatric colorectal surgeon. Also, I don't know if I can like give you my contact information, but anyone's always more than welcome to reach out to me. I talk to a lot of girls that are preparing for Malone's or appendicostomies. So if anybody ever needs any advice on that, I'd be more than happy to, to talk to parents and patients. That's wonderful, Maddie. So if you can give me your email address so people are aware of that, that would be wonderful. Sure. The best email is Madeline Henwood, M-A-D-E-L-I-N-E, Henwood, H-E-N-W-O-O-D, at gmail.com. That's wonderful. So Maddie, thank you so much for being so open and Thank you for being you because only people who have followed who are close to you, your family and friends know really what you've been through and you've encapsulated wonderfully your journey. You are truly inspirational. Thank you, Greg. You inspire me as well. I can't even begin to thank you for the, the platform that you've given so many patients and the awareness that you've brought to our community. I mean, the things that you do and what you've dedicated your life to is beyond amazing. So thank you. You inspire so many people. I hope you know that. Oh, I try my best. And most importantly, you and I are going to meet up in person in July in Phoenix at the Pool Food Network Conference. How good. I can't wait. I know. I'm so excited. I will finally get to meet you and Chelsea in person, which is just crazy to think that I've never met either of you in person feels like your family so it'll yeah. it'll be wonderful and i know how important chelsea has been in your life as well as yes. she has in mine yes she's another incredible and beyond inspiring person yeah all right mate thanks so much again see you soon bye-bye i'll see you soon <laughs>